This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, really unusual and different kind of a guest. Her name is Ateret Violet Shmuel, and she is the founder of an organization called Indigenous Bridges. She's an activist. She deals a tremendous amount with Native Americans, indigenous peoples, helping bring their story to the Jewish world, the Jewish story to their world, and to be a voice for marginalized peoples all over. Heads up, this is a long episode, so I'm going to keep the intro quite short. We had a really long conversation about her history, her travels through the punk rock scene, her Jewish odyssey, and of course her organizational work and her activism. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Not everyone will agree with her political orientation, and that's fine, but I think it's a valuable perspective to bring to the fore. And at the very least, I believe you will appreciate her passion and her commitment to bettering our world. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. Comments, suggestions, and sponsorships. Dedications available at Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Indigenous Bridges founder and director, Ateret Violet Shmuel. We are here with Violet Gurian. Hope I pronounced that correctly. She is one of the founders of Indigenous Bridges and someone with a fascinating life story. How are you, Violet? Well, Hashem, I'm doing really well. My full name is actually Ateret. Violet Shmuel. I my married name is Shmuel. Wow. So the Gurian is, the, is, is a maiden name? Yeah, it was my, it's my... Okay, my I'm just name. reading off the screen. That's all I can do. <laughs> Don't hate the messenger. I'm just, you know, just reading. I'm very proud of my last name, my, my, my family's last name. I beautiful, beautiful. So, Violet, tell us a little bit about where you're from. I detected a really a strong Israeli accent when... <laughs> and uh, so give us, give us the history, where you're from, and take it from the top. Uh, so I actually grew up in the States. I was born and raised mostly in Boston. I moved around quite a bit. Um, I lived in Providence, Rhode Island for a bit. I worked in New York City for a bit, and I moved to Jerusalem in about 2010. Um, And I'd been there until returning to the States with the project that I work on. Amazing. So what was your early childhood like? What brought your parents (laughs) all over the place and wherever you were? I don't, I don't hear a Boston accent, by the way. <laughs> oh, I, used, I actually, I used to have a pretty gross Boston accent. Like I had like a thick, gritty one. At the yard. <laughs> I was applying for colleges. I, I realized I didn't want people to know that I like uh, came from like not great neighborhoods. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I worked really hard to get rid of it. Okay, we well, um, did a great job. After living in, in Israel for like, I don't know, eight, 10 years, something like eight years, eight years, I guess. I have sort of like a pan-Anglo accent, you cool. know? Right? Love it. But my life was pretty, I, I've led a really kind of crazy life. 
<laughs> All right, give us some color. It's a good tease. You got to give us the details. I grew up in the punk scene. I was a punk rocker and wow. sort of like my older sister's sort of pet project. And my older sister was like an old school punk. And was this during the 80s? Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. That was the big punk scene was big in the 80s, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I was pretty intense. I was pretty radical. Lots of color in my hair. (laughs) Now, for those unfamiliar, could you maybe describe a little bit of what it means to be part of that scene? You may not be aware. The punk scene varies based on where you are. It's it's very like area specific, but in general, it's it's like a counterculture subgenre of music and like a lifestyle. It's based on like a genre of music that's pretty angry and a fashion that's sort of very in your face, extreme. Yeah, <laughs> sort of defies norms. That was how I grew up. That was that was like where the world I like Mamash grew up in. How, how did your, was your, your parents were okay with that or how, like, what was the draw yeah, into that? Yeah. I'm five of six kids. By the time I came around, they, they, they <laughs> Pilot who? (laughs) Basically, I got called my dog's name a lot. Oh, goodness. After they went through all my siblings, it was the dog and then me. So, no, (laughs) it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. God forbid. (laughs) So, yeah, I grew up in the punk scene. I had a kind of complicated life and then decided that my way forward, my way into my future was through academics. And I worked really hard and got into a really good school and uh, studied, I don't know, Middle Eastern history, comparative religion and psychology, um, and uh, ended up needing to work during university because it was super expensive. And I ended up with a career in something completely different. I ended up as an artist professionally for many, 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 many years. Throughout my entire life, I've always had to do something that was creative and something that I felt was really impactful, like meaningful in the world. So at any given moment in time, I was always like either making my living through my art and doing social justice and human rights on the side or doing making my living through human rights and social justice and doing art and teaching on the side. So I've always sort of had one foot in both worlds. And for many, many years, I made my, my living as an artist, as a designer as an art teacher, while also very much involved in human rights and social justice and civil rights and uh, indigenous rights, international indigenous rights. And that's sort of like where my academic background was, was in, was in that world. Whereas like art was, <laughs> was sort of talkless like my Parnassa. How did and, you get out of the, the punk scene and into the academic world? Like what, what kind of drew you there? No, I was still punk rock when I was in university. <laughs> I went to Brown, which is a pretty punk rock university. Yes, very, among the most <laughs> liberal and uh, artsy of the universities out there. Yeah, it was an excellent, I had a great time. It was a, it's a great school filled with great people. I, now looking back, some of the stuff that I learned, especially like in terms of like Middle Eastern history was a little bit problematic from the framework that I have now as having worked in that world for as long as I have which has sort of influenced a lot of what I do uh, now and, and why. And has also sort of uniquely positioned me to be like able to speak to a group of people who would otherwise never hear 
things that I say or anybody who, who has the experience that I do would say. Yeah, it just sort of happened that way though. It sounds like you were very driven early on towards academics. Was that something you kind of, was that fostered within your family or was that something you really did for yourself? My family is pretty academic but I saw it sort of as my way out of a lifestyle that wasn't so healthy for me. I had a lot of anger at the injustice in the world and genuinely believed that if I had enough degrees or went to the right school or whatever, that pe- that my voice would be given currency in a way that it wasn't before. Interesting. Um, and I would be able to make an impact in, in the places in the world that I thought were really, really problematic. And in some ways that was true. And in many ways it was not. <laughs> <laughs> At what age did you start to identify with or notice that, that injustice? Oh, early. Early, early, early. I grew up in a very multicultural environment. I was living with, with people from many different walks of life and many different cultural, ethnic, racial, religious backgrounds very, very early on. And I was a bit of a troublemaker, to put that lightly. And so I noticed, specifically with, within the, the like framework of America, like I noticed that there were things that I could get away with that the other people that I was with could not because of like external things, which I found really troubling to watch people that I considered and still considered family be mistreated because of reasons that have nothing to do with who they are besides surface, like skin, skin level. And that, that always really made me completely mad. Like it, it drove me nuts. Like I come from like a very dynamic family that many members of my family are involved or have been involved in social justice and human rights in some capacity for a very long time. So it was a piece of my upbringing. And then through my own experience and my own sort of moral, internal moral compass and my just exposure to the world at a very, very early age without any sort of, like there wasn't a lot of like guidance or censorship in my childhood or in my early adult life or in my adult life at all. And so I really was just plain exposed to to the way that things were and shocked and appalled by that and the the dissonance between the way things were and the way that I believed things should be. I very much believe in justice, in chesed, in humanity, in, in there being like tzedek in the world, you know, like in, in there being like a balance and, and good in the world and, and seeing things that really were not that. I had trouble with and I couldn't accept and I cannot accept still and and sort of throw myself headfirst into trying to do whatever it is that I can given my limited calium to let the cannot say to like um, repair repair it what's interesting is that you seem to have must be some kind of an inborn you know inclination because you know I can imagine kids experience things and let's say they feel a certain advantage and others that they notice others are not enjoying. A lot of kids might just be, you know, happy or relieved or, you know, just, oh, that's, that's cool. I get to do X, Y, or Z. And for you, it sounds like you became indignant at that and, 
and you really were sensitive to the plight of other people instead of just kind of focusing on the fact that you did get away with something or did enjoy some benefit. So there clearly seems to be some kind of inherent, you know, sensitivity that you have. It's actually really funny. Every so often I relearn that not everybody is like that. But I, in general, I just assume everybody also cares about everybody else as much as they care about themselves. Because I think in, I don't know, I, like humanity is a, a, like I see the goodness in humanity and I genuinely like believe that people are inherently good and want to do good and, and want to do the right thing and really care about each other. But every so often I, I, I have this realization and I had one like pretty majorly re- recently that like other people are, not other people, but people in general often are really struggle to be able to see through other people's lens and life experience that they they can't so easily get out of their own personal viewpoint and perspective and be able to shift into and and understand the lived experience of other people and i think that that if as a whole if if humanity really works to to practice sort of that kind of empathy and compassion we would be in a much better place absolutely what was your early Jewish experiences like? Were you, were you involved in a, uh, did you have a Jewish education? Were you involved in a rich Jewish environment? Or is that something that you've developed over time? So my dad actually, Baruch Hashem, just turned 88. Wow, 88? Um, my father is 88 years old. Oh His name goodness. is actually Ben Gurion. I have a very funny story about my father. That's um, cool. His first name is Ben. <laughs> His name is Ben Gurion. And there's a very um, funny story about no. him meeting David Ben Gurion. But that that's for another time. Oh, no. Um, okay, I got to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, do you want to hear it right now? Yeah, go for it, please. Let me answer my Jewish experience and then I'll get back to it. All right. All right. So, hold you to that. My dad witnessed some pretty intense anti-Semitism and experienced some pretty anti-Semitism. Was he, did he grow up in America? Or? He grew up in America. My family came over during the pogroms. But there was a lot. People don't really talk about this now. But, but there was, I mean, America had a Nazi party. There were Nazi rallies in New York City. There was a lot of open anti-Semitism. The mob used to uh, go and break them up, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it was a whole, I read a whole article about how uh, the mafia guys would go in, like Meyer Lansky, Bugsy, you know, all these Jewish mafia guys. They were actually, they were, they were sort of contracted by Jewish politicians or organizational <laughs> heads to quietly go in and bust up these Nazi rallies. Really interesting. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> well, I'm in Vegas right now, home of Bugsy. There we go. There we go, Bugsy. Um, so, yeah. So my dad really, like, experienced a lot of anti-Semitism and kind of to protect his kids didn't really, like, we grew up Jewish. Like, we were Jewish. But we weren't really, like, involved in, like, Jewish communities so much. I, li- I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. I went to school in Brookline, Mass., which is a very <laughs> Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, Brookline. But I, you know, like my, my, my most, I'm going to say like most of my friends were not Jewish growing up. And we had Jewish values and Jewish culture and we would like do like nominally Jewish things, but my family is not religious at all. In fact, my dad is sort of anti-religious and they freaked out much more when I became Balachuba. Then when they when I was like a tattoo artist, so it was it, it was like a a very I don't know for them it was very difficult for me to become religious. It was much harder for for them to accept me as like an Orthodox Jew than me as a punk rocker. But 
like Jewish values were all, uh, very much a part of my upbringing and uh, it's very much who we are. Okay, you always a Ben Gurion story. <laughs> okay, okay, so this is its own segment. Yeah, like my dad, my dad. All good, all good. It, just, it was too much of a tease. There you go. <laughs> so, so my dad was born in 1932 and he was, I think, the second, third graduating class of Brandeis University the first Jewish academic university in America, like secular academic university in America. And he was a beatnik. Uh, he was uh, port wine drinking, rolled cigarette smoking, poetry writing, bongo playing beatnik. And, and I, like a bit of a, bit of a he, was, he was a bit of a radical. So I come by it honestly, it's a little bit genetic. The way that I heard the story the first time, like the story I grew up with is different than the story that I actually got fact-checked from my dad's family after many, many years. So I'm trying <laughs> to give you the real, real story. Okay. So my dad received a letter one day from the office of Dean Abraham Sacher, and who was the first Dean of Brandeis, saying that they wanted to bestow an honor upon him. And he had to show up Monday or something, to the dean's office, dressed sharply, and it specifically asked him to shave his, because he had a big beatnik beard, and to wear shoes, because my dad didn't always wear shoes. And so he was like, what? What is this honor that's going to be bestowed upon me? And my dad was like, you know, he like sat on the green and wrote poetry and like did his thing. And, like, and so he shows up and my dad is like a peacenik, like a beatnik, peacenik, radical anti-gun, anti-violence, whatever, anti-war, the whole nine. And he shows up on like Monday or whatever day it was uh, with shoes on. Outside of Dean Abraham Soccer's office is a whole bunch of men with machine guns. And my father's like, what is going on? And they, they usher him inside and he's a little freaked out. And they push him into Dean Abraham Soccer's office. And there are a ton of people with guns a ton of people with cameras, Dean Sacher and David Ben-Gurion. Dean Avram Sacher says, Ben-Gurion, meet Ben-Gurion. And David Ben-Gurion looks at my father and says, are we related? And my father says, aren't we all, man? And they shake hands and they take a whole bunch of pictures and then they push my dad out of the office as fast as possible before he can say anything that will embarrass them. And then the next, like a few days later, my father's all over all of these Jewish publications. And I think, I don't remember what the Brandeis publication is, like the something or other. The Current, maybe? And it's front page, and it's my father and David Ben-Gurion. And it says, Ben-Gurion meets Ben-Gurion. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion of the newly found state of Israel meets Ben-Gurion, president of the Student Welcoming Committee, and blah, 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 blah. And, they, they introduced, and my dad was like, wow. There wasn't a student welcoming committee. And if there was, I certainly wouldn't have been the president. <laughs> but I'm like, thank you very much. So when I went to make Aliyah and they asked me to shoot to like prove my Jewish pedigree, I basically like slid that picture of my father and David Ben Gurion across the table and I was like, Does that does that count? <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah. That's, that's a great story. So they just thought it would be sh like sticky? Like what was the point of that? I don't know. It was just, it was like a funny thing. He like came to visit the Jewish university and they were like, oh, we have a Ben-Gurion already. That's... My dad was very, very anti-war, anti-violence, anti-whatever. And so I'm, they didn't really want him in the same space. Got it. Got it. 
So tell me a little bit more about your own Jewish journey, how you ended up becoming more connected to Judaism and how you got to Israel. I think, like, ultimately, I was always really, like, deeply spiritually connected and sort of searching for something that resonated with me. And, like, academically, I explored, uh, like, religious traditions from around the world. The truth is, is it was really, like, so the end of high school, I met this woman named Alanka. And she and I became very close friends. She grew up in a Chabad family. She sort of had like gone off the derech a little bit and was like, look, searching for herself and like found me because I was not the derech. <laughs> and she and I became like inseparable. She was like, she was like my like soul sister. And we spent a ton of time together and just sort of by merit of where she came from, she like brought a lot of like Jewishness and Jewish learning into my world. And like, I was really into learning like, mysticism like of other cultures and and uh and this sort of like mystery cults and things like that like I was really really interested in learning ancient philosophy and and things of that nature and she sort of brought Tanya into it and it lit my soul on fire it was an experience that I had never had of like feeling connected in a way that I had never felt before and it, 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 mom has changed my life. It was a big piece of how I like moved away from the punk scene because I, I couldn't, she and I would like have these like deep, powerful, beautiful conversations, like soul expansive conversations about like the nature of reality and the, the role of humanity and like the way that we like plug into like the divine undercurrent of the universe and all of that stuff. And then I just couldn't, really get back into the world of like drugs and violence and rock and roll that is punk rock right it just didn't it didn't hold like it, it was empty in comparison for sure and that was sort of the defining relationship that pushed me sort of back onto the path of like my ancestors and my people and it became the more i learned the more like fire there was inside me and the more that i wanted it I didn't really have a framework, right? I didn't really grow up with any sort of like Jewish education. I didn't know the Aleph bet. I didn't know, like, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know anything. But I remember like the, there was one in high school, there was one day that we, it was a Friday and we, we, she was like, I really want to light candles before we go out. I was like, okay. So we lit Shabbat candles <laughs> before going to a punk show. And it was just like, it was like a very slow progression for me because there was so much learning that I needed to do in order to be able to like get there. I know a lot of people who come from sort of extreme places become very extreme, right? They like, they like throw themselves. Changing the one for another. Sure. Right. Yeah. It wasn't really like that for me. Although some people I think assume that it was because ultimately I ended up Orthodox, but, but it was like a very slow progression. Like I would pick up little things slowly, slowly, slowly. And they weren't usually like the things that people pick up first. I remember in my sophomore year of, of college, I took this amazing class that actually, this really was like one of the major shifts for me. I took a class called Sadiqim, Tales of the Hasidic Masters and Their mm. Followers. It's amazing. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I remember <laughs> the name of this course. It was by this professor. Oh Sounds God. like a Yafa Eliyach uh, book title. 
it was, oh my God, it was such a good class. And I was in it with some of the most amazing people. My, essentially my chavruta was this woman named Michaela Matt, who is Professor Daniel Matt's daughter, the guy who translated the Zohar. <laughs> she was who I studied with. There were all of these just like interesting people from all of these different walks of like the Jewish world, reconstructionist, like rabbis, children, and like people who are like on their way to get and like some, like it was just like all these incredible, like thoughtful, interesting people. And we just like learned this, like these Hasidic stories together and it changed everything. I was like, wow. And I and the, learned all about like the, the like superstitions and the, the this and then that and the other thing. So one of the first things that I picked up was, was wearing white on Shabbat. <laughs> the Kabbalist tradition. Just like... You know, and I wear all black otherwise. I always have. I don't really own color. So uh, yeah, that was like a really transformative class. And it, I kept those books and I, I kept pouring over them. And there was like... I really felt deeply connected to the teachings of the Balatanya I really liked, who many years later I found out is actually my family, and Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, and uh, sort of became Breslov. <laughs> I wasn't as into Rebbe Nachman at the time, because I, didn't, I don't like asceticism. Like, I, I really, the way that I interact with and like plug into Hashem is, is by seeing the beauty and, and the like the majesty in the phenomenological world, in humanity, in people, in food, in art, in music, like really and truly like experiencing like the delicious glory of God in like everything that exists in this world, you know? And like, so the excess fasting and sobbing and rolling in snow and stuff like that just didn't really appeal to me. <laughs> um, but I have the, Rebbe Nachman is sort of like my, my go-to when it comes to Torah these days. <laughs> nice, nice. How'd you get to Israel? So despite like all of this learning, I really, like it took me a very, very long time to actually like become religious. And it was sort of an imperceptibly slow process. I didn't really like it. It was sort of like one day I was like, oh, you know, like I like, like picked up a little bit here. I like would light candles on Shabbat. I would started keeping kosher. I started keeping Shabbat. I started doing this. I started doing that. I started, I started teaching myself how to daven. I, you know, like whatever. And then one day I sort of was like, oh, I, I guess I'm from now. <laughs> but I was like, I was living with non-Jews. It was like an artist house that I lived in in Providence. I never really found myself in the American Jewish community. And... I was always sort of like looking for something else and just never really felt like I fit anywhere because I'm like an artist deeply involved in human rights and social justice. I care deeply about the plight of other people. I, you know, grew up in the punk scene. I have sort of a wild history and I'm also really, really machmir. <laughs> so it was like spiritually, I would be very connected, like on the same page as like the Orthodox communities. Like, that's what I found fulfilling spiritually. Like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pray out, outside. Like, I wanted to pray at, like, the, the Orthodox and the Hasidic, like, uh, shuls. But I had such trouble connecting to the people outside of just, like, a religious space. And I felt like I couldn't be my whole self there. And sort of the opposite was true socially. Like, people that I connected with intellectually and, and like, 
socially and artistically, I had nothing in common with right. spiritually. Well, a lot I really of atheists like, or pantheists or... Yeah, I, I just couldn't be my true whole self there at all. And so, like, I was just sort of stuck in this, like, bizarre garbage dichotomy of nonsense where I just, like, couldn't be who I was entirely. And I, I just sort of had accepted that because I didn't know that there could be anything else at all. And I had, I had sort of created this really beautiful life for myself. I was living in Providence, Rhode Island. I was, my career was doing really well. I was teaching art to sort of like rebellious youth, which was incredibly fulfilling. I had a store that I was a partner in that in Providence, downtown Providence, that was sort of a part like local artist designer boutique and part art gallery and we had an upcycling workshop where we taught people how to like reuse unwanted materials. I was heading up an agricultural project called the Fertile Underground, which is a <laughs> it was a it was really cool, which was sort of a nonprofit that I started in my living room, creating like closed circuit urban agricultural initiatives in downtown. I was just like, I was like involved in all these things. I had a great group of friends. I was living in this amazing space, like a beautiful Victorian house with all of these really interesting people. I, I built a studio in the basement. I was just always creating. I was doing a lot of really like cool work. I was doing a lot of human rights work and like Jewish, back then I was doing a bunch of like Jewish Muslim interfaith dialogues and stuff like that. And one morning, like I woke up and I, there was a voice inside me that was like, you have to be in Israel. The rest of me was like, that's dumb. <laughs> like, I worked so hard to get here. Like, why would I, why would I leave this? Like, this is, this is what I wanted. I, I was given working papers at the age of 13. I wasn't like emancipated, but I was like partially emancipated. I was like in one of those situations. And I, I had worked really hard to like pull myself up and get myself educated and get myself through all of these crazy situations. And it created this really beautiful world for myself. And I had had, I, I had finally gotten to a place where I was like materially almost like comfortable. I was designing jewelry also at the time, which was like a pretty lucrative thing to do in Providence. And, you know, like, I just really, I was like, why would I give this up? Like, I love my job. I love teaching. I love the work that I'm doing. I feel like I'm making a change in the world. I'm, I have great friends. I have, I'm like creating these, these farms all over the, the city. I'm like, like, why would I give this up? And I, so I ignored it for a while and it got louder and louder and louder until the like, you need to be in Israel. Voice it started like, speaking in Hebrew. <laughs> it started speaking in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, essentially. I, I, yeah, it, it just drowned out like everything. Like it overpowered everything. Like it was all I could think about. I woke up in the morning thinking about it. I went to sleep thinking about it. It was like this painful, like longing to be there. I didn't really know very much. Had you about been there it. before? No, <laughs> but I, I had like, I had done a lot of stuff with like Jewish, Arab, Israeli, like blah, 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 Israel activism, blah, blah, blah stuff. And I, for the sake of full disclosure, and I'll get to the, the conclusion of this story at some point, I, for the sake of full disclosure, I was an anti-Israel activist because that's part of the course in, in like liberal academic social sure. justice world. That was really my framework for Israel. I really didn't, like, I knew Israelis. I knew Palestinians. I, like, whatever. But I had never been there. I knew I had family there, but I had never been. And so 
finally I was like, I, I couldn't handle it. Oh, you know what? I think I just realized that one of the people that I talked to about this like intense yearning was a Native American friend of mine who is like ostensibly like a medicine woman. And I was like, I'm having these, like, I'm, I'm having dreams about Israel. I'm waking up. I want to go there. Like, I, it's, it's like overwhelming all of my other thoughts. I, it's all I think about. I, she was like, obviously you have to go. It's your land. Wow. Um, and so I, you know, I, you know, ignored that for a while longer. And then finally I was like, I can't do this. I have to, like, I have to, like, this is my soul. Like, I need to, I need to listen to my soul. And so I bought myself some plane. I took off time from work. I got somebody to, to like replace me at my jobs. I handed over some of my responsibilities to other people. I found a subletter and I, I don't even know if I found a subletter. And I, I went to Israel by myself for a couple of weeks. And in Israel, in Jerusalem, was my old Havruta, Michaela Matt, Professor Daniel Matt's daughter, who was living in Nachlaot. And she had also become religious. I was going to guess that you had been in Nachlaot. If, if I was going to pick an area for you to be. I mean, and, and that's my neighborhood. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the unofficial mayor of the Shook. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up going there and she and I had just sort of led these like parallel spiritual journeys. And we ended up just like reconnecting in Jerusalem and like learning and praying and like going to synagogue and we went to the hotel and it was only like a matter of days. And for the first time in my entire life, I had this like overwhelming sensation of belonging and being exactly where I needed to be. That like all of the, the like dissonant pieces of myself fit harmoniously for the first time in my life. It was life altering. It was, it was I, I could never like, that was it. That was it for me. <laughs> I don't know. I can barely talk about it without crying even now. Yeah. Like uh, it was what, 2009 maybe? No, maybe it was 2010. Maybe it was like, it was like the spring of 2010, I think. And so I went back to America to this beautiful life that I had created for myself. And I was like, okay, maybe I just needed to experience that. I need to like tap into like my people and my culture and my roots and my land and like whatever. And I can go home and move forward with my life. And this won't be like a consuming crazy thing forever. And no, I went back and everything was empty. I like my friendships didn't have the same kind of weight because after having been in a place where people understood all of the pieces of me at the same time, like it, it was hard for me to just accept like my job didn't hold the same kind of meaning. I couldn't pray with the same kind of intensity. I didn't feel as connected. Even the food didn't taste good. So in a matter of months, I gave away everything that I owned. I put some stuff in storage. I packed it. I boiled everything down to like three suitcases. I got on a birthright trip and I came back to Israel and canceled my return flight. Unbelievable. So I want to fast forward a little bit just because we could probably, I think, spend hours and hours on, on all the history stuff. I want to understand a little bit more about indigenous bridges and, and how you came into the world of indigenous peoples and human rights, civil rights, all those kinds of things in Israel. And what is it actually even? I don't even know. And what it is. So give us, give us the overview and all the information. Assume I know nothing because I know nothing. <laughs> Great. So this is the important piece. So <laughs> the rest is, is fine, but the indigenous bridges is the important piece of all of this. So I have been involved in indigenous rights in some capacity for nearly 20 years. I started sort of understanding the, the injustices that indigenous people in America Face 
at a pretty young age. And like the more that I learned, the more enormous it began to seem and the more outrageous the injustices began to seem and the more outrageous it was that nobody knew about it within like outside of indigenous circles. Some capacity have had sort of like, have been involved in trying to fight for justice for native people in this country and and in other countries as well. During my journey as an activist also, and as a Jew, the more that I really learned about my own people and my own culture, my own religion, my own tradition, my own history, and what was actually happening in Israel, the more I realized that the stuff that I had been told about what was happening in Israel was lies. And not just lies, but it was the, this, this sort of old anti-Semitism repackaged in like appealingly rebranded in the language of human rights, right? That portrayed Jews. I mean, what is anti-Semitism? Yeah, anti-Semitism is the portrayal of Jews as whatever a community finds especially despicable at any given moment in history, and then the oppression of Jews because of those narratives, right? So on the left, uh, like on the right, open anti-Semitism is often just like Nazism. It's just open Nazism. And it's, it's pretty clear. You're like, oh, that guy's a Nazi. That's not cool. But on the left, it's a lot more insidious. We're good people. And because we're good people and we care about other people and we care about humanity and human rights and social justice and indigenous rights and feminism, it's our obligation as good people to stand up against the injustices of the evil genocidal Israeli apartheid regime because Jews are white European colonialist settlers who have come and illegally stolen poor indigenous Palestinian land and are now committing genocide against them and apartheid and waging war and stealing land illegally. And literally every single piece of that narrative that I just threw at you is garbage. It's, it's, it's BS. It is, it is the commonly held narrative and it used to just be in sort of like farther left circles, but it has now become the mainstream narrative within academia, within the media, within human rights, social justice, activist circles in general. It is just the, the accepted narrative. There's never really been a lot of pushback against that because either people don't know that that's not true or they don't care, right? So for me, it wasn't that I didn't care. Everybody has got a lot of stuff going on in their life, right? And we default to believing the opinions of other people that we trust on on certain issues, right? Like I was a big fan of all of these different social justice and human rights uh, advocates and activists who also believed these like, that Israel was an apartheid state, that the Jews were European, that they were upholding white supremacy, all of these different pieces. And, and because I didn't really dedicate like my life at that point to really understanding the intricacies and the nuances and the history of my people and the Palestinian people and the, all the, the Arab, pan-Arab colonialist entity and like all of this stuff, like I didn't really know that I was being sold an anti-Semitic narrative. And the more involved I became in Arab-Israeli politics, the more involved I became 
in uh, human rights in the Middle East. The more research that I did in Middle Eastern history, which is ultimately what I ended up studying, the more that I learned about my own history and my own culture, the more apparent it became just how toxic and how pervasive these toxic narratives are. And I watched in horror, I have watched in horror over the last 10, 15 years as these have become not only widely accepted, but also sort of the litmus test that a lot of activists have to pass in order to be part of a lot of human rights and social justice. Moral purity tests. Yeah, and mostly Jews. Like, oh, you're Jewish? What do you think about this? What's your stance on Israel? Or do you support the occupation? And occupation itself is a shorthand for the belief that Jews don't have a right to their indigenous homeland. Like, all of these things are shorthand for these, like, deeply, deeply problematic, like, factually void anti-Semitic narratives. And people don't understand that. And Jews, God bless us. We (laughs) really want to, even in the most unaffiliated Jewish individuals you have this deep impulse to do tikkun olam to like be a light in the world you know and to stand up for justice and if you like me were spoon-fed this narrative that not only do you have privilege but also that your people are doing horrific things in the world worse than the nazis because after what happened to us in germany we went and did it to someone else then you 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 not only you're like well i have to own my privilege I have to use my voice to speak up against my own people because that's the right thing to do. And so you have people like me who genuinely like want to do good in the world being sold this narrative that's based in ethnic and racial hatred against my own people. And so it took me a long time to really be able to untangle that and even longer to feel brave enough to go back into those worlds and be like, listen, I see you. Like, I know who you are as a good person. You are a good person trying to do good things in the world. And this is the story we've all been given. And it's not your fault that you were sold this garbage narrative. Everybody is. It's commonly accepted. And Jews are a type. Like, ultimately, there, there's this, this picture painted about us that we're this, like, powerful, like, shadowy, wealthy or like group, organized group of human beings who have like a lot of authority and land and power and resources at our disposal. But really, how many of us are there? 12 million maybe in the entire world? We're a tiny, 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 tiny minority group. We're just very visible. And in part because, you know, we we're survivors and in part because the world is obsessed with us <laughs> and in like this sort of like negative way. And so it took me a while to build up the courage to be able to go back into my circles and be like, listen, like, I know you, like, I know you're a good person. I know that you care deeply about the world. I know that this, you know, you would be shocked if you, if you were to, and, and you would do the work to, to sort of like call yourself out and relearn these things. If you were to find out that what you were putting forth into the world was actually hate speech, God forbid. But let's look at the, this narrative that you're selling about, about Israel and about Palestine and about Jews in general. And let's, let's unpack it a little bit and see where it actually comes from. And I think that you'll find that the narrative that you've been told to believe by people that you've trusted isn't actually the reality of the situation on the ground. And so 
people who are willing to do real work in the world are open to that. And because people know my work, I, you know, I've been around for a long time. Uh, I've started about three nonprofits or at least been involved in starting about three nonprofits. I've been really vocal and really, really loud in, in the world of, of racial justice in America, in the world of human rights internationally, in the world of indigenous rights for a very long time. I've been in the thorn in the side of many people. And so because of that, my voice does have a certain amount of currency. And people know that I've, you know, I've worked in in a lot of grassroots peace organizations and human rights organizations and Israeli-Palestinian blah, blah, blah stuff, whatever. I have a basis from which I'm like, you know, discussing these issues. And so often, Baruch Hashem, like I've been given space to talk to people who would otherwise be so hostile to hearing anything remotely, even like Israel related, that they would shut down and give no space to that. But I like, thank God. So that's sort of like the backstory there. And so I was watching within my own indigenous activist circles, right? Like I was a guest there, yeah. But like within indigenous activist circles, I was watching as this sort of very scary soft power move was happening, which is that the Arab colonialist narrative, which is incredibly anti-Semitic because Jews have not only resisted colonization, but have regained sovereignty in the Middle East, which is, in their eyes, an atrocity. This narrative, which is funded, really well funded, by terrorism, by weapons, by human slavery, and like, there's a huge amount of money, and a huge amount of power, and a huge amount of the population that really is pushing this narrative, and they are pushing it into indigenous circles. Because they understand that indigenous voices are not given weight when it comes to their own issues in this country, but they're using them as pawns and as mouthpieces for their own agenda. And right now, within the left, the things that are seen as sort of not good, this sort of like decolonizing mentality, which I ultimately am really on board with, but it is painting Jews as white European colonialist settlers who are essentially doing to the Palestinians what white European colonial settlers did to Native Americans. Now, what's, what's wrong with that, right? Is that Jews actually are the indigenous people of the Southern Levant, whereas Arabs came as, as like colonialist settlers. As recently, 50%, as recently as the last 100 years during the Balfour declarations, they came for work, right? So does that deny them human rights? Absolutely not. Does that make them indigenous? Also absolutely not, right? Indigenous, like there's a definition of indigenous. There, there are many definitions of indigenous, but I think the most useful is the one that, that we as Indigenous Bridges and many other organizations use, which is a people who have an ethnogenesis from within a specific land space, who have a history that's tied to that land space space that predates colonial contact and that has a unique culture, language, tradition, spiritual or religious framework and dress that is unique to that people and tied into that land space and the desire to pass that on to generations to come, right? So that if we define indigenous in that way, then you have groups who are indigenous and you have groups who are not. 
and Arabs who come from the Arabian Peninsula, who have an Arab culture, language, religious framework, traditions, dress, and have colonized, have come through like with empire historically and or as foreign workers to, to benefit from economic opportunities. They are human beings deserving of human rights. Absolutely. Are they indigenous? Absolutely not. Not to the land of Israel. So you have this backwards narrative that's being funneled into indigenous communities to get them to identify against Jews. And have you heard Rudy Rockman ever do Israel? Oh yeah, I love him. He's wonderful. Yeah, so the first time I heard that reframe was from him. He was on the podcast also. I thought it was a brilliant reframe and something I never really thought of before, shockingly. Yeah. I actually, I think I just posted something on uh, his Instagram yesterday being like, hey, you should probably check out our project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's great. I'm a big fan of his work and I think he's an incredible at doing what he does. So basically, lots and lots so basically you were, your idea was that you had these contacts within Native American communities and you said, hey, let me actually do kind of like Hasbara with them and help them understand our argument in Israel and we can kind of help each other. It was more than that. It wasn't, wasn't singularly just like, hey, let's, let's get rid of this, this anti-Semitic garbage that's being funneled into Native American communities. It was more like we recognize that Jews and Native Americans and Jews and indigenous people worldwide are sort of uniquely positioned to help each other in the long term, right? Like my focus has mainly been on, on Native Americans and Jews because there is a unique relationship and a unique, we're uniquely positioned to assist each other in a multitude of ways that have incredible long-term beneficial possibilities, right? So we work with a lot of other indigenous nations. In the, we have connections with, with the Yazidi who are currently battling for their lives in camps in Iraq after being attacked and nearly destroyed by ISIS. We work with the Kurds. We are beginning to discuss things with members of the Berber community and the Aramean community and mem- like many different other tribal nations who are indigenous to the Middle East and the Levant and sort of come together to support each other. You know, when, when the Kurds actually put up a bid for statehood in the UN, do you know the only nation that voted in their favor? Israel. Wow. Right? Indigenous nations worldwide, like we face similar issues and we have a similar history, right? Jews don't often think of ourselves in the terms of indigenous, right? Like we don't think of ourselves as an indigenous people necessarily. If you really look at it by definition, we absolutely are. And Judaism is an indigenous spiritual framework. Our religion is based on our land. We pray towards Jerusalem. We pray for Jerusalem. It's inherent in who we are and what we do because it's the foundation upon which our nation was created. And the whole concept of diaspora, which is by definition, peoples outside of their indigenous land points to our indigenous identity. We like, we don't even think about that, right? And so one of the things that my hopes is, is to be able to help American Jewry sort of reframe their own identity so that we really understand who we are as a nation and on a different level. This will also help American left-wing Jews like myself, who were just taught that we were like these white people with privilege. It reframes that entire, we can own our identity in a different way and actually 
be able to connect to who we are and who our ancestors are, were and what our traditions are in a very different way and own it and own it with pride. Um, and in addition to that, when we can really see ourselves as indigenous people, we identify with the other indigenous people more. And we are at this point, Baruch Hashem, we are uniquely positioned in America. We have a voice. We have a voice. We have the ability to, to help change policy. Thank God, many of us have been allowed economic sufficiency. We have been able to do well in this country. And we, we all across the board, like, have this impulse to do good in the world and to help. And so my hope is to be able to really help Jews understand our identity as indigenous people and become more identified with other indigenous nations and then use our voices to help them in whatever way that we can. Not just our voices, but our resources, because we have what to give and we have so much to gain, right? A partnership between our nations can only bring good for all of us, right? So Indigenous Bridges sort of came about, basically there was a lot of us sort of talking into the world about Jewish Indigenous identity, Native American issues, Indigenous worldwide issues, like possibly using Zionism as the framework for an Indigenous rights movement that succeeded and creating these collaborations. And then the birth of our project really happened when a number of indigenous leaders came to Israel to try and pursue relationships with the Israeli government. And they were not necessarily so successful. We did create relationships and we formed this organization with leaders from several different First Nations and Can uh, Canadian Native people and Native Americans. We are, our leadership spans many different tribes in North America, not just the United States, and diaspora and in Israeli Jewish leaders have sort of come together for this project, which is Indigenous Bridges, with the goal to create essentially, ultimately, an international Indigenous Peoples Network with four main objectives. One is political solidarity, right? So we... We're doing this thing. This is the whole purpose. The whole reason I came to America is to create these community partnership programs. Jews and Native Americans and like most, most minority groups who have experienced atrocities and traumas tend to become really closed off after a trauma, right? So like we, we sort of circle our wagons and face inward and try and heal ourselves and don't trust other people necessarily. So we, we become pretty insular and therefore don't really get to know other people as much as we could, especially within like the more religious Jewish world. There's not a lot of interaction with, out, with the world outside of the Jewish community. And the same is true with the Native communities. They, Native communities are still actively experiencing genocide. A lot of people don't even know this, but up until the late 80s, early 90s, Native children were forcefully taken out of their homes. and put in these schools called residential or Indian schools where they were forbidden from speaking their language or contacting their family or using their, their native name. They were abused and tortured and in many cases killed. And this was in all of our lifetimes and nobody knows about this. And within Jewish communities, we've experienced anti-Semitism, bigotry. The Holocaust was only 70 something years ago. 
we also have struggled. And we found that across the board, throughout Indigenous people, we, we have a similar history, right? And because of that, we've closed off. And so what I've been doing and what we've been doing as an, as an organization is trying to build bridges between communities, to try and create relationships between communities and partnership programs between local tribal nations and local diaspora Jewish communities so that we can learn about each other, so that we can learn each other's stories, each other's histories, each other's hopes for the future, our, our traditions, our culture, the issues our, our communities are facing, and figure out concrete ways to support each other through educational material and initiatives, through partnerships, through raising our voices in support politically, pushing for policy change, mobilizing our communities to stand up for each other. We really, really can and will see success. The second piece of what we do is um, economic. So we're, we're trying to create economic opportunities from a place of dignity within indigenous communities and, and supporting each other economically. So in a lot of Native American communities, there's a systemic impoverishment, right? They're intentionally prevented from making a living from a place of dignity. For example, in every reservation, there's nearly 600 federally recognized tribal nations in the United States and several hundred state recognized and unrecognized tribal nations in the United States alone. And every tribal nation has a different sort of matzav, like a different, a different situation. But in general, they all have treaties with the federal government or the government or the state, or they don't. And pretty much across the board, those, those treaties have been violated in one way or another. And there's also these issues with being able to make a living. Right. So there's in a lot of places, like say you and I wanted to like open a convenience store, right? We'd go, we'd find a place, we'd like do the, the application process. It probably wouldn't take more than a few weeks if we had the money and we like had the resources and we knew what we were doing. Right. Now, every res is different, but on many reservations in this country, if you and I wanted to open a, a convenience store and we were native tribal members of that reservation, it would take, I think, no less than 47 steps and at least five years, right? There's so many sort of stumbling blocks set in front of people with the intent and objective of making these people fail, right? There's an intentional impoverishment in Native American communities so that they're not allowed to utilize or benefit from the resources of their own land. Often the only opportunities economically that, that are offered are from like companies that are destroying their their land or their water sources because that there's like policies within those companies that they have to hire native people like it there's there's it's a big complex multifaceted thing but in general there's a lot of systemic issues in native communities and in you know you have reservations like like pine ridge for example who i work with they have i think a 95 percent unemployment rate there's the kind of, it's abject poverty in the way that most Americans don't even know exists in this country. There's running water is unavailable for, I think, 30 to 35% of Navajo Nation. Electricity also, they, they don't have running water or electricity. It's really difficult. And so one of the ways forward for empowering our peoples and indigenous peoples worldwide is through economic sufficiency, economic sovereignty, being able to make a living from a place of dignity. And so we're creating all of these different 
economic opportunities, markets for arts and crafts traditionally, which actually has, which actually has much wider reaching repercussions in that it, it encourages the transmission of culture, which is one of the things that helps ground people and staves off things like depression, mental illness, substance abuse, things that indigenous people traditionally suffer at a disproportionate rate, right? Because of the systemic cutting of their roots through these Indian schools, through the, through the residential schools. So sort of giving, giving a reason to reconnect and to reconnect to culture, to reconnect to art, to reconnect to history and language, because all of those things are inherent within, within art, within craft, within storytelling, things like that. And sort of create, so art and craft market is the really important piece. Tourism, allowing for communities to present themselves from a place of dignity in their own words, in their own language, telling their own stories, produce, things like that. So just creating means of economic sufficiency. The third piece of what we're doing is agricultural, which is also tied into everything else. Indigenous peoples across the world have a unique relationship to our land, right? We have traditions that span back to before memory about how to interact with and relate to our land and our, our crop production and things like that. We all have these unique, beautiful traditions and stories and, and laws about what to do. Jews are no different. We have Shemitah and, and the whole, we have our own tradition like that. And so essentially what we want to do is we want to create like a, a knowledge exchange amongst indigenous people about traditional agricultural wisdom and also new technological innovations. So Israel fits into this very easily because Israel's at the top of the top of the top when it comes to new agricultural innovations and technologies, right? Drip irrigation, water desalinization, like bug insect repellent without chem like poisonous chemicals, soil cauterization, stuff like that. We have some of the, the best agricultural technology in the world. We're not, on the other hand, so great when it comes to like long-term vision, right? Because we're always in crisis. So <laughs> we don't... So we have so much to gain from other people whose focus really is long-term sustainability and being able to offer Israeli agricultural technologies to nations who really desperately need it because they're in these economic situations where their culture and tradition have sort of been cut out from underneath them, where they're struggling to reconnect to their land. They, so many people have were the subject of forced relocation. So they lost their, their traditions because their traditions were tied to a different land space. So creating like a database where people can really share information. And the, the repercussions of that are incredibly far reaching also, right? Like we have some of the highest instances of, of diabetes in native nations, heart failure, heart disease, because of the garbage food that is the only thing that's accessible within those communities. Some communities, many communities are different, but I was talking to a woman a couple of days ago who were helping with a clinic and she was saying that she's like in the center, she's the chief of her people. And she's sort of in the center of a, a number of different nations in South Carolina. And she was talking about how the only place that people get food for like many, many, many miles is the dollar store. It's the dollar store. That's where the majority of native community, communities in her area get their groceries is the dollar store, right? So obviously not fresh produce, obviously not healthy food, obviously like, and, and, and in America, you know, like 
the cheap food and the stuff you can get at the dollar store is processed super unhealthy and causes all sorts of health issues, right? So if we're able to reconnect people to their land and give them food and water sovereignty, which is like an incredibly important piece of autonomy, we can change the trajectory of all of our lives, right? And the last piece of what we do, the fourth goal is a cultural exchange. So the community partnership programs, getting to know each other face-to-face, -face. we are doing tourism. We've already hosted a Kurdish tour group in Israel. We're about to do another one, Bizat Hashem. There are native groups we're planning on bringing also. And, and we want to be able, we want it to be an exchange. We want there to be Jewish and Israeli tourism in native communities elsewhere. And so we're, we're working on creating essentially an entire tourism industry and infrastructure with which we can present ourselves from a place of dignity as we are in our own language and create these relationships and these partnerships that have long-term positive repercussions and essentially will create ambassadors on behalf of our nations within other nations, which is incredibly important. For too long, our communities have been essentially either ignorant of each other or pitted against each other. The only way forward is through collaboration. It's the only way we can ever succeed is by working together. And so Bizat Hashem, we are laying the foundation and the groundwork to really make that possible. And because of the work that we've done and because of the, the relationship building we've done, when Corona hit, the communities that were, the, that were impacted the, the most intensely were tribal nations, yeah? The Jewish community and the native community were two of the hardest hit, are two of the hardest hit communities in the, in the United States, in part because of the nature of tribal identity, right? Our entire lives revolve around community. They revolve around tradition. They revolve around, you know, intergenerational support structures. We value our elders and our rebbies and our grandparents, our families live close to each other, and we are ceremonies center at our life. We pray, we can't even pray without 10 people. You know, like, like we need each other. And Native communities are the same. And because of that, and because of the incredible poverty on, on reservations where you have like multiple generations living together in a, in a double wide trailer with no running water, no electricity, when Corona hit, it hit us hard. It hit us harder than almost anybody else. Right. If you look at like most people in, in like Brooklyn, like the, the Orthodox community got slammed. Navajo Nation. People are really, really being impacted disproportionately within tribal communities. And so when Corona hit and we had these relationships already, I was like, all right, this is it. This is the, like this is why we have these relationships. So we worked tirelessly days and days and days and days on end fundraising sourcing medical supplies and food and reaching out to the communities that we knew were being impacted the worst and the hardest and getting out PPE, medical supplies for emergency first responders and food to communities who had been sort of cut off. And so we, for the last, since, since early April, have been working with about 28 Native nations right now to get out like critical life-saving Corona relief. And we're still fundraising. So if anybody wants to donate, <laughs> we really, <laughs> we need we'll give out the links. I just want to ask one or two questions in closing. Can you give, share maybe one story of a relationship that's blossomed or something unique that 
has emerged because of your work, maybe in particular with the Native American tribes? Well, I don't even know where to start. There's so many. We have become, I have personally become very close to many, 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 many different people within the, the Native world, some of whom I now consider family, like momish family, like the people that gave me this. I think it's actually probably Navajo silver and, and turquoise. It's, a, it's actually a hair piece. It's like to put your hair up and put like a skewer through. It's about 150 years old, at least. It was given to me when I was invited to this Indigenous Leaders Conference in January. And I was publicly honored in front of hundreds of different Indigenous leaders from all over the world for our work in, in bridge building and was given this as a token of their appreciation and a gift from this couple with whom I've become like very, very, very close. She is the ambassador for the Eastern Band of Georgia Cherokee, and he is the peace chief for the Arawak Taino. And they are, they have an interesting religious framework that's, that's pretty unique and, and different from a lot of the other leaders that I've worked with. I work with a lot of people who are, are, are very traditional, you know, like traditional Native American spiritual practices. And I also work with a lot of Christianity has roots in a lot of communities as well. Often there's a, like an interesting blending of the two. So there's always like a really interesting like spiritual and religious framework that I, I interact with. But these people are, are the, the river ones have become like dear, dear friends of mine. They're incredibly good people and we have been collaborating on many different projects. They've also been helping with the Corona relief, sending out packages to different communities that they're connected with more than I am, or partnering with them. They have a suicide prevention project called the Heart Crossers that we wanna be able to bring to the communities that we work with. Laurelyn, Dr. Laurelyn Riverwind is like a, a sister to me. And it's really funny because she's very conservative. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm like a renegade social justice human rights activist, Orthodox Jew, and she's like a very conservative, she has a very different religious framework than me. She is, but she's just this, this powerhouse of like authentically amazing goodness. Like she's a good person and she cares deeply about her people and Native people worldwide. And she is strong and fierce and does what she says she's going to do and is amazing. And I am now like very honored to call her like my sister. So I have very, very close relationships with her and her, her husband, Chief Joseph Rifferwind. And, and I have relationships that like uh, the vice president of Navajo Nation and his wife, Dottie, we met out on, in Shiprock and have been working very closely with them because Navajo Nation has been hit harder than almost any other native nation. Well, they've been hit really, really hard and are really, really suffering from, you know, uh, COVID. And so we were able to really, like, come together and, and ship off, I think it was nearly $30,000 worth of emergency medical equipment and, and relief within a matter of days. And from that, our relationship has sort of been building. And also my relationship with the, the head of donations out there. And also Alex Whiteplume from La La Lakota Sioux out in Pine Ridge has sort of been our point of contact out there. And, and he is a really incredible person who was really dedicated to his people and has become a friend. There's many, many people, many, many wonderful people. Chief Wampamequin, 
of the Massachusetts nation in uh, the Boston area has become bringing, a bringing it back home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, no, so that's been incredibly rewarding to be able to really connect with him and to be able to, to try and give back because the Jewish community that I grew up with on is on his land, yeah. you know, like, and, and to be able to try and partner the Jewish community out there. And there's been such success. The Boston Jewish community is really, really excited about partnering with native nations out there. We actually, we hosted a group of native leaders from the, the Boston area in a Chabad house last Sukkot. And it was incredible, just incredible. And we've started introducing local indigenous history into the Chabad education. <laughs> so That's cool. it's a, well, that, that leads me to kind of my final question, which is a bit, maybe a bit provocative, but also a bit timely, I think, because you've seen this sort of social justice movement erupt in the last couple of months. Whenever we release this, it'll be a little bit further away from that, but certainly still within the last couple of months, you know, with the protests and Black Lives Matter and all of that. And one of, I think, trends that is seen as alarming by many people has been the attempt by the left or maybe the radical left to tear down American history, you know, writ large, not just correct racial injustice, but, you know, thereby use that as sort of a, an entry point to uproot, you know, the entirety of, and in many, pe- many people would say rewrite American history and, or certainly to sully it and so forth. But you're coming from a, probably, you know, from a vantage point where you have these deep and, and vast relationships with Native American how do you see American history yourself? Is, is America something that you do feel pride in and feel, believe in as a beacon and as, you know, a fount of moral, you know, goodness and democracy and things like that? Do you see it as, as many on, on the, I guess, the radical left would as, like you described the Arabs seeing Israel as, as this colonialist, imperialist, you know, white supremacist, whatever kind of project? Is it some kind of conflicted blend for you? How do you negotiate your own? sense of Americanism? Ooh. <laughs> so I want to make very clear for the record that I'm speaking as myself, a tarot by the Chmuel, and not necessarily as the American coordinator of <laughs> Indigenous Bridges, but you're asking me personally or as, as an organization? Personally, personally, and given your personally. background and given your connections. So as a Jew whose family came here as refugees, right? This country is what saved my family. We would have for sure been killed in the Eastern European diaspora. And the American diaspora offered my family a chance of survival. And because of that, I am here and I am grateful. As a historian, as someone who is aware of the lived realities of multiple groups of people in this country, America is experienced differently based on who you are, right? The American experience is not unanimous, right? Like the ability, the freedom, liberty, upward mobility, access to jobs, work hard and and it'll pay you is not accessible to everyone. And it is, that experience is, is dictated in part on skin color, in part on ethnicity, in part and by religion, in part by gender. And I think, and I'm, I'm cognizant of that. I, I think that this nation was founded in a kind of problematic way, 
for sure. The, the story that we get handed, sort of neatly packaged as children in our history classes, is obviously not the full story because we never, you know, that's, that's never how stories are. There you have the, re the truth and the, and the reality of truth and the truth of reality, and then you have whatever like fragment of that it, we want to pass on for whatever agenda, right? And that's true with everything, right? Not just America. And we know that, that history is written by victors or the, the dominant cultural norm. And that's the history that we're given. And as someone, I don't know, I don't know if I would really consider myself like a historian, historian. I'm, I'm, I don't have as many degrees as, as many other people who consider themselves historians. But as someone who considers themselves a student of history, for sure, I think that if we're to be honest, and honesty is the only way to create a just society, if we're to be honest, we really need to recognize the injustices. And the fact that this country was founded in a way that was really unjust for many people. It was a country that was taken over by a foreign colonialist entity and taken from people who were here before and had advanced civilizations who were here before in incredibly unjust and violent ways. Many people were forced to sign treaties giving over their land under the threat uh, that the federal government would murder every single member of its tribe. So they were, they were given the, the option to either kill everybody they know and care about or cede their land. That's the foundation upon which this land was acquired. And it was built up by people who were taken from another continent and forced into slavery and treated like property and sold and abused and, and killed indiscriminately. That is also a piece of our history. For sure, America is, has this beautiful story of freedom and liberation and religious freedom and economic opportunity and like being the master of your own destiny. But there is a lot of other facets to that story. There were a lot of people who were hurt and are continuing to be hurt by the systems that were created by the founding of America. And I think that it is our responsibility as human beings who are a part of this American nation to, to understand other people's experiences so that we can decide as a people, as a community, as a nation, how we want to move forward, what, what direction, what trajectory we want. Do we want to continue idolizing people who commit genocide, proudly commit genocide? Do we want to continue idolizing people who considered other human beings property? Do we want that, even though that wasn't, you know, a lot of people say like, no, 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 it was like a, it was like a, a contextual norm, right? Like that was the history. That was, they, there were, that it wasn't necessarily true. There were lots of people in those times and spaces that, that were all against the dehumanization and slavery of people that were against mass murdering women and children for spite and fun, that were against destroying food sources and stealing land. People are people and, and, and we're a complex dynamic species, you know, and we all have 
different lenses and things which influence our outlook and our understanding of the world and our perspective. And I believe in us as a whole, that we can learn from our past when we acknowledge that it's real. When we're able to sort of see the gestalt picture, acknowledge where we're doing really well, where we're not doing so well, where maybe we need to apologize and, and try and make things right and figure out how as a, as a collective that we're gonna move forward. So when we're talking about getting rid of history, I don't really know that that's what's happening. I think that we have people saying, this is not a piece of American history that I think that we should be proud of. I don't know that I want my school named after the general that was willing to die in order to keep human beings as pets. You know, I don't know that I want to, you know, walk past an idol of a woman clutching the scalps of native children that she murdered while they were sleeping, which is a statue that exists in, in Massachusetts. I don't know that I, you know, like these are not pieces of American history that I think that we need to be proud of over the fact that we've built up a nation and become a one of the biggest, most powerful world players because of our diversity because we've allowed for people to escape oppression to come here to work because we had open like this is a country built by immigrants but i think we it, it's it's incumbent upon each and every single one of us to really be at least attempt to stretch ourselves to be able to see the whole picture from somebody else's perspective right so imagine imagine as jews yeah imagine that germany won world war ii you know, that, that the Nazis became, succeeded, that America never got involved and that, that Germany and Russia really became the, the major players in the world and their ideology and fascism was the norm. And their history was taught in schools everywhere, you know, that taught the Jews were hook-nosed, sniveling, hand-wringing, money-grubbing, monsters that hurt children and that it was they had to be gotten rid of in order for the the Aryan nation to succeed and that thank god we did that because they were terrible like for them that's their truth right like that would be their reality it doesn't mean that jewish experience didn't happen or is invalid right and the same is true for native history in the united states and the same is true for Black history in the United States. We need to acknowledge that there is a very different reality for people, that the different people experience American differently and, and to, to, to stretch ourselves to be able to see and have empathy and compassion for their lived experience. I actually have, I'm in the process of writing a, a, like a piece about Black Lives Matter. You know, as a Jew, it's a very complicated, as like a very proud Jew and an Israeli Jew who is very aware of my history and my people's history and, and my connection to my indigenous land and you know, my religious traditions and all of that, to see anti-Semitism becoming part of the foundational platform of the official organizers and organization is horrific, is horrific. And it is succumbing to white supremacy ultimately because it's, this model of keeping minorities pitted against each other so that we don't work together, so that we're not successful, right? If this group hates this group and this hate group,
group hates this group and the, you know, the blacks and the Jews and the natives and the Latinos and the, you know, like everybody's pitted against each other, then we don't work together. We can't fight for our common interests. We can't succeed. We won't know each other. We'll be too busy fighting amongst each other to, 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 to even be able to respond when something bad happens to us. We all need allies. We're all minority groups with a history of having been oppressed, having been murdered, having had genocide commit against us, having been dehumanized and prevented from entry into different strata of society. We need each other right now. So I think, you know, like I said before, I think the only way forward is through getting to know each other, through understanding each other's history and lived experience and figuring out where we have commonalities and shared experience and working together for a better future for all of us. Definitely a lot to think about, some really heavy, complicated issues. Where can people learn more about Indigenous Bridges, about your work, about everything that's going on online? We have a website. It's www.indigenousbridges.com, not .org, .com. <laughs> .org was taken by the other Indigenous Bridges, huh? <laughs> it was. Actually, it was. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there's another, there's a, I think it's Indonesian. There's an Indonesian organization called, Indi that has a project called Indigenous Bridges and they have indigenousbridges.org. Uh, we are www.indigenousbridges.com and you can sort of see our platform there. We really have had sort of like a vague online presence so that we're allowed, you know, we, we didn't really want people to know too much about us before we showed up to communities. We wanted to be able to like reach people face to face. Sure. Um, Did you have, is there Facebook and Instagram? We have Facebook. We, there's a Facebook group, um, Indigenous Bridges. Uh, Instagram, we're not on, although okay. we should. Not yet, not uh, yet. <laughs> but, oh my God, we, I have phenomenal pictures from my travels over the last two years that very much should be up on, on, on our Instagram. There was an article that came out about us in, in the forward, specifically about me and my work with COVID, because that's been the part of the project that I've been heading up. Different members of our team head up different pieces of the project. We have people who are involved more in the, the economic piece of it, people who are involved more in the agricultural piece of it and the social piece sure. of it, the political piece of it. So because of my connections here and, and the fact that I came to America for two, a year and a half, two years to be able to, to do this sort of liaison work based on my relationship with Native communities, we were really able, like that's, that's I sort of took on the COVID stuff. So the, the couple articles came out in... Uh, we made the front page of J Post magazine a couple, I think a month or two ago. Nice. We were in the forward. We have a couple more press stuff, that, things that are coming out. And yeah, the, that's, people can get involved. And right now, we really are in the middle of a crisis. We really are in the middle of a crisis that we really need help from the community with. The people that we work with and the nations that we work with, many of whom, for the record, are incredible allies to the Jewish people are really suffering. So many, many nations that we work with and many allies of the Jewish people that we've been in touch with are, are suffering, are being hit super hard by COVID-19 and are, have like a higher infection rate than almost anywhere else in the country and are not getting the resources that they need. They are not getting, they do not, in the best of times, they don't have the resources that they need. They don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have electricity, they don't have healthcare, they don't have medicine, they don't have doctors, they don't have clinics. Right now, in, a, in, this, in this global pandemic, they are being slammed. Okay, so, so I hope that people will reach out and, and look at these social media 
outlets and, and I'm sure there's ways there that people can donate on the if anybody website. yeah if anybody is is moved to donate there's a easy donate button at the top of our website at www.indigenousbridges.com and we've partnered with a group of a number of different organizations who are helping us with donations and matching donations we're, we're partnered actually with another Jewish organization called giving masks which is a it's actually a couple orthodox guys out here every mask we buy from them they they donate it's incredible and they're incredible people and they've been helping so much and fire keepers international obviously and we're we're trying to partner with a number of organizations that bring out water and healthcare workers and stuff like that okay Aterit violet shmuel from indigenous bridges thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you this has been ari koretsky on jews you should know please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.